Welcome to the Highland Good Food Podcast. I'm Emma and today we are talking about vegetables. We all know that eating more veg is good for our health and that we need to move towards a plant-based diet for the sake of planetary health. But accessing veg isn't always easy or affordable. To explore this further, we are initially joined by Simon from Nourish Scotland, who has been leading on a wonderful veggie initiative called Peas Please. So welcome Simon, it's really great to catch up with you. It'd be super if you could introduce us to the Literally Ground Baking Initiative that is Peas Please. Yeah, hi Emma, um, thanks for having me. So Peas Please Project, so this is essentially a project is all about increasing people's access to veg. So I mean, that's, that sounds quite easy when we, we talk about, oh, just give people more veg. But I don't know if people remember the five-a-day campaign, but that was essentially said to people, you need to eat more veg because obviously it's much better for you, for your health. It's also better for planetary health, etc. So go on, go, go and eat more veg. But of course, when you say that, it doesn't really make sense because it just puts all the emphasis on you as the consumer to eat more veg. And actually, that just can't happen. Because the food system is so so enormous and so complicated that by saying somebody just go and eat more veg doesn't take into account things like, is the veg available? Is the veg being grown? Who owns the land? And that dictates what veg is being grown. Things like, do people even like veg? Can they afford veg? You know, all of these different things, all these factors come into play. And so just pushing on the consumer and asking them to eat more veg doesn't really work. If we said to everybody, okay, eat five a day, and everybody said, do you know what? That's a really great idea. I'm going to eat five a day. We can't do it. We, even with our imports and everything we grow in this country, we don't have enough for even half of that amount if ever we eat five a day. So this is the kind of thing that we're up against. So at Peace Please, the project is all around working across the food system to look at each of these individual items, you know, the retailers, the growers, the consumers, the, the system influencers like the governments and things like this. How do we work with them all at the same time to increase the accessibility of veg? So the way the project works is on one side, we talk about pushing veg towards people so that is working with people like your retailers like your Sainsbury's and your Lidl's and your Greg's and your Aldi's and all of this kind of thing to get them to up the ante in terms of how they're getting veg to people so that might be how they advertise it in shops that might be about making it more affordable that might be about making sure there's a minimum number of portions of veg in a school meal etc and then the other side is getting people to want more veg because it doesn't matter how much veg you get to people if at the end of the day just scrape it off their plate what's the point so it's how do you make that more attractive how do you make it more accessible and easy for them to get to how do you get it so it's normalized and so we work on both of these sides all across the food system so since 2020 we've increased about 162 million portions of excess veg have been either sold or eaten in some way um, since we've started and even last year because last year you know this 2020 I don't need to talk about everything that's happened there but things like the out-of-home sector the, the places like the um, the pubs and the restaurants massive impact on the amount of veg that people could get access to we still increased the portions by 72.1 million portions this year which is pretty good going that's actually incredibly impressive and the holistic approach to it just seems to be really working. So how are you working with communities and individuals to drive forward this message? So obviously on one side, we said we'll talk to the main players in the food sector, but realistically, it's about individuals. Everybody who works for these companies, no matter how high they are up in the company and how low they are, or what they do, we all have to eat, you know, so we're all consumers of vegetables. And the way we work with communities, so it may be we work with community groups like yourself at Move Food and looking at how we can grow more veg in the communities, get more people in touch with veg as a thing rather than stuff that's in a ready-made meal, for example, you're not really seeing. 
But the other side is we've been running these workshops called Veg Advocate Workshops. And a veg advocate is effectively a food activist with a funny name. And we've done these workshops right across the UK to talk about food systems and to get people to explain what they see as the barriers to them in accessing veg. Because it might be that someone lives very far away from a shop and they can't get to the veg. And it may be someone who is new to Scotland, uh, an asylum seeker or a refugee who may not have the language to talk about the vegetables. There are all these different barriers. So we then work with people in these workshops, find out what the barriers, and then we can then feed this back through to the food sector to say, these are the reasons why we're perhaps not getting access to the vegetables. How do we overcome them? But the workshops have always also been there to recruit these veg advocates or food activists to now be working with us as the project continues into 2023, when our current funding comes to an end, to look at now, great, how do we work together at our local level in our communities to do this? And we've just finished workshops in Scotland. We have 44 veg advocates in Scotland, which is amazing. And we've got about 130 so far in the UK, but workshops are still going on in Northern Ireland and in Wales. That's fantastic. And it just shows you how topical food is and how interested people are to think that folk have signed up. 44 food advocates love it. You were telling us the highlights there for the last year in terms of how many extra portions of veg that you've got onto people's plates. So are there any other highlights from the Peace Please annual report that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, well, I mean, 2020 has been a really odd year for the things we've been doing. And so obviously, one of the big things we do is getting organisations to pledge to do their bit to help people to access more veg. And it was quite tricky getting some of those organisations who've already pledged to feedback on that, because obviously they were trying to keep their businesses going and things. But one of the big sort of wins, I suppose, we had this year is some of the catering sector in terms of they really had to think about how their business model worked and what they wanted their business to look like going forward. And so um, without mentioning any names, there's one particular catering organisation that we've been working with quite closely who have really decided that this is an opportunity for them to look at how they work in each of the individual nations of the UK, but then look even further into how they become more sustainable in how they run their business. So increasing the amount of plant-based options on their menus, looking at who are the local suppliers in the areas and how can they get more local suppliers and shorten their supply chains in their businesses because it makes business sense to them but they are also seeing the direction of travel that the food industry is going in general we are moving to more and more plants-based we're going to have to do that to achieve our carbon emissions targets and so some of the smarter businesses are saying right we'll get ahead of this curve now this is our opportunity to sit down and rethink our business plan so that's been really encouraging for me who's been very much coming from a climate change background looking at how we can get more people to be thinking about that I suppose the other big thing that we've been doing, we've done this for a few years, we have an offshoot of Peace Please called Veg Power. And I don't know if anybody may have seen these adverts on the TV of these kind of vegetables coming up from the ground and brrr, coming to take over the world. And the kids have to eat these vegetables to, to, to defeat them. So eat them to defeat them. And it was our take on an advertising campaign to really flip over some of the advertising industries, fairly nasty and, and kind of subliminal messaging that gets into people's minds. How do we turn that around? And so we made this advert and we had like Jamie Oliver and Hugh Funny Wittenstall and all these celebs going behind it. We did this last year with the backing of ITV and we had 46 million views of this advert, which is enormous. Yeah. But we also coupled this with some really succinct and well planned out teaching materials for schools. And this is primary schools. So that as the advertising campaign went on, 
each week would feature vegetables. They might be growing these vegetables. They'll be using them in the kitchens. They were, so everything was linked up with the advert and then with, with also teaching plans. And we had 1,500 schools take part in that across the UK, which is fantastic. So, yeah, so I think those are two sort of big successes, I think. No, they sure are. And it just shows how exciting this initiative is and how you're coming from all different angles, which is obviously the objective behind it. What do you see as opportunities and challenges that we face in the immediate future with Brexit being imminent? Ah, <laughs> the B word. So um, the opportunities, I think we've seen during the pandemic a move towards localised food systems. Food has gone up the agenda in people's lives for better or for worse. We've seen many more people have to be supported through food insecurity, many more that would have even thought they would have had to have been done. And also the way that kind of things like veg box schemes and local suppliers have become more prominent in people's lives, that is also an opportunity. And how do we take that learning and move that forward? Because we don't know what's going to happen. Even on today, which is the 9th of December, we're still having Brexit handing, you know, deal or no deal hanging in the balance that is going to be decided over a three-course meal this evening, apparently. And so whatever happens, we know from speaking to the retailers, food prices are going to go up, whether there's a deal or there's no deal. The difference is how much food prices are going to go up. So there is an opportunity to be really exploring our local food systems and how we reconnect with what's happening on our doorstep. You know, being able to look the baker in the eye or the fishmonger or the butcher or the budget to make those like, personal connections and speaking to the box schemes that we have done during the pandemic, They've said that they had this huge spike and then they thought it would probably drop off and it has dropped off to a lesser or greater extent. But actually, that's kept really, really high. And I think it's really encouraging to see that people are, are thinking more about the local food systems. I think there are also opportunities which are unfortunate, but because people have had to rely on food support during the pandemic, there's a more of a realisation of, A, this isn't just something that happens to other people, but B, how do we do it smarter? Because we've all had to scramble around and we've learned so much and there's been a real sort of merging together of community organisations to sort of say, how do we do this better and how do we work on these kind of things together? It certainly is seemed to be one of the positives of this experience that we've all had in this last year. It has brought people together and it has increased their resilience, which hopefully puts us in a better position for dealing with whatever it is to come, come the 1st of January. Thanks very much, Simon. It has really been super to hear more about Peas, Please, and I'm sure that our listeners will find it fascinating what's going on. How could our listeners find out more or perhaps get involved in the initiative? So people can contact me directly. And so that's simon at nourishscotland.org.uk. But you can also just, just use a search engine of your choice and look for Peas, Please and the Food Foundation, because they're our UK partner. We host most things on their website, so you'll be able to find things via that. That's brilliant, Simon. Thank you very much. I'm sure you will all agree that Peace Please is a fantastic example of a cross-sectoral project that is making a difference. I find it crazy to hear that it isn't even possible for us all to get our five a day. This is a basic health need, yet in Scotland we grow more veg to feed animals than humans. It is encouraging though to hear the progress being made with the catering sector, as in Scotland the average person, pre-Covid, eats out of the house seven times a week and there is only half a portion of veg for every three meals eaten out. We all really need to work together to address this. Which leads me to our next guest, Maggie, from the Natural Vegetable Company, who is doing a wonderful job to feed her local community fresh, organic, seasonal vegetables. 
So morning Maggie, it's great to be chatting to you. It'd be really super if you could introduce us all to the Natural Vegetable Company, the context of where you are, what you do and who's on the team. Okay, so we're based just a few miles out of Inverness on the western edge. We started off here 17 years ago. We're at the stage now where we grow a large range of organic vegetables. We're growing outside in the field and we're also using four large polytunnels, which allow us to extend the season for the crops, but also allows us to grow crops that are very difficult to grow in Scotland outside. So yeah, we're growing organically. So we grow a complete range of vegetables. We sell them via an organic veg box scheme, which we do all year round. I've spent a number of years building up a relationship with different restaurants in Inverness. So that's quite a large part of the business as well. Not so much in the winter, but we do do some winter crops to restaurants like baby beetroots and leeks and things like that. But there's some weeks in the summer, actually, that the sales to restaurants overtake the sales to the veg box business. And I, I like working with the restaurants. It takes a while to build up a working relationship with them as well and a trusting relationship so that they know that we're going to deliver good quality crops when we say we will and also for them to get an understanding of the seasonality because they don't necessarily know what we're going to have. If you just tell us a wee bit more about your customers, maybe we could start off with the veggie box scheme and give us an idea of what percentage that is of your model, of your business, and what area you cover and how that works. Yeah, the way the veg box scheme is, people can go on our website and decide that they'd like to try getting a veg box. We keep it quite simple. You can choose a veg box to get every week or every fortnight, and you can choose a small box or a large box. We keep it fairly simple. It doesn't work for everybody getting a veg box in terms of you probably won't know what you're going to get in your box each week. What you do get in your box reflects what's in season. So, for example, at this time of year, we're into December now, so we're doing winter root crops, potatoes, carrots, beetroots, turnips, parsnips, that kind of thing. We're also into the winter brassica family, so cabbage family. So things like purple sprouting broccoli, different kales, we grow different types of kale, cabbages, and then leeks, that sort of thing. We've still got squash as well. So that's what goes in the boxes. We have a number of people that get the box every week. And so we try and vary it as much as possible so that you don't want to get a cabbage in your box every week or a turnip in your box every week. So we keep a record of what goes in the boxes and try and vary it. So, for example, one week you might get beetroot and turnips with a curly kale. And then another week you might get parsnips and carrots and onions with yeah. a Russian kale. Or a, yeah. So that's a bit of a challenge in the summer. Obviously, it's quite different with all the summer crops. So we do a lot of salads and tomatoes and cucumbers and courgettes and beans. As I said, it doesn't work for everybody. Yeah, I think you have to look forward to your box and then have a little bit of imagination to know that you're going to enjoy cooking with them. There is so much information out there now as well in terms of you know, if you've got carrots in your box this week, you can just go on your phone and Google carrot recipes. And so I think it's easier. But as I said, it doesn't work for everybody. How many boxes roughly do you sell a week? We're averaging 70 a week at the moment. So we've got, it's almost exactly 100 veg box customers. So we do, obviously, there's a lot of planning ahead in terms of 
it's actually getting onto that time of year now when we'll start to do our plan for next year's crops so that we know that we're going to have enough variety to go in the boxes each week of the year. So um, we'll do our planning for the seeding, which will start again at the beginning of February next year. And we'll work out when, for example, our tomatoes seeds will go in, which will be at the beginning of February. And then we'll work out where they're going to get planted in the tunnels which is usually at the end of April, and then we'll know that we'll start getting tomatoes and we'll be able to put them in the veg boxes from, it's usually about the third week in July, right up until maybe the middle of October. So we'll do that for all the different crops. That must be a really important part of the whole process is that, is yeah. that planning. Yeah. Growing organic vegetables and running a veg box scheme, there's quite a lot of different elements to it, but it is all about planning ahead. So for some crops, you're planning almost a year ahead. For example, we've got purple broccoli out in the field. Some of it's ready now, depending on the variety, but we've got some, the seeds went in in April and they've been planted out in the field. They've grown into these big plants and they're going to produce their spears around about April, May time. So it's literally a year ahead in the planning. There's also to run the veg box scheme. When I started it off, and it was never the plan to do a veg box scheme, but I did because a few people asked me, would you do a veg box? And I didn't know how to grow all these different crops. And I thought, no, I can't do that. But I did decide to do it for a mixture of reasons and started off really small. So literally it was like five boxes in the summertime that I dropped off around Inverness. And then the next year it kind of grew to 10, 15, 30. And it just kind of grew year by year. And at the same time, I was physically growing on a larger area and also learning how to grow the crops better. You're always learning with organic veg growing as well. One of the things that we're passionate about is I think quite a lot of people don't really understand the organic thing as well. Partly to do with the way I think it's been marketed possibly over the years, maybe not so much now in that organic is possibly something a little bit exclusive or slightly more expensive. But actually, the way we see it is that it's a very positive thing to be doing in terms of it's the method that you use to look after your land. It's all about the soil, really, having really healthy soil and feeding the soil and having the life in the soil and all the fungal activity that we're passionate about to allow us to grow the crops in our organic methods. So that's what organic to me is about. It's about looking after a piece of land, (laughs) caring for a bit of land, which is always how I kind of came to this, actually. I'm originally from Glasgow, but I did a lot of travelling. My parents always took me up to the West Coast on holidays when we were young. And when I was a teenager, I did a lot of travelling around the Highlands generally. And then when I met... My now husband, Neil, we did a lot of travelling and camping up the West Coast. And I always remember sort of thinking, oh, you'd see maybe where there was a ruined house and you'd see where there was the run rigs and imagine getting hold of a bit of land and imagine being able to take a bit of land and grow things. How empowering would that be? So Neil and I had some friends that bought a farm over on the mainland near the Isle of Skye back in the early 1990s. And we ended up going there to manage the place. So we kind of suddenly found ourselves with a flock of 60 sheep and a small herd of Highland cows. And we just started growing a few vegetables for the house. The nearest shop was a couple of miles away. I remember we had a small polytunnel in the old sheep bank there. And we were just growing a few vegetables for ourselves. We were there for seven years. Eventually, well, we moved through to Inverness and then 
we finally managed to persuade the farming neighbour over here to sell us the 10 acres of land that we have here. And I'd learned from our time in Glen Elg on the West Coast that growing salad crops was relatively easy to do. I couldn't compete with the big growers of potatoes and carrots, but I was keen on the idea of growing salad crops and selling them to restaurants. Yeah, so we managed to buy this small piece of land, build our house on it, and then I still look at it sometimes, like we were just out earlier looking, and it's a relatively small area of land. Just looking after a bit of land, it also feels a very creative thing to do, and it's a very kind of fulfilling thing to do. Yeah. And you're also feeding people. Exactly, <laughs> yes. yeah. So yeah. 100 households, that's fantastic. Yeah. It'd be good if you could tell us a wee bit more about your relationship with our local restaurants and perhaps how that's changed over this last year because obviously with restaurants being yeah. closed, you must have faced a lot of challenges this yeah. year. Yeah, so it's taken us a few years to build up relationships with some of the restaurants. When we start off to approach a restaurant, I usually give them a phone call and saying I'm a local vegetable producer would you be interested in getting local vegetables? And a lot of restaurants do say that they like to use local produce and produce from the highlands. So after that, if I get a positive response, I'll go in and visit them and I'll usually take maybe a sample of a salad bag or whatever and a price list and a list of what's available seasonally. So what's available in the spring, the autumn and the winter. So it takes a while to build up a trusting relationship. Apologies for cutting out there, we had a minor technical hitch. And now we'll hear more about the Natural Vegetable Company from Maggie's son, Ian. Hi Ian, it's great now to chat to you. Um, If you could just start off by telling us about your journey so far and what new skills you've brought to the farm and the impact that has had. Hey Emma, nice to talk to you. Yeah, so a little bit about me and, and my background. So At the moment, we're currently approaching the end of my second full season on the farm. And prior to that, I left school. I studied a sport and exercise science degree down in Edinburgh. And, you know, growing up around the farm, farming just wasn't really on my radar. Just, I don't know, just didn't really register with me until I went traveling and started to broaden my thinking and horizons. And I came home wanting to do something and had a couple part-time jobs and I started to do a bit of help round on the farm as well. And I just remember just a really beautiful September sunny day harvesting squash out in the field. And I just kind of realized that this job didn't really feel like a job because you're outside, your hands are in the dirt, you're in nature, you're getting physical exercise. And it just really appealed to me, the lifestyle. And um, yeah, I could also see that there's an opportunity to get involved as I thought things could maybe get tightened up and improved in the farm. And so, yeah, that was kind of my introduction to the farm, I suppose. So since then, I've been really keen on using my scientific sort of mind and analyzing everything that we do in the farm with the aim to increase efficiency, streamline things and make the working experience easier and making sure that we're profitable. And then with such little experience on a farm, I felt like one of the most useful things I could do was ensure that we were collecting lots of data. So looking at all the processes and figuring out how long you're spending doing each one, figuring out whether you could shorten some of the time, essentially removing waste. But in order to do that, you really have to be quite rigorous and collect as much information as you can 
and have a good filing record. So I use Excel. And then towards the end of the year, I could really break that down, make some graphs, and it just helped me figure out how things work. So we've been doing that over the last couple of years. And yeah, I'm, I'm happy to say we've made a lot of improvements. Yeah, excited for the next year ahead. What do you think is the biggest change that you've seen since you've started to look at things in a more mathematical sort of way? Um, I'm just thinking of when I was visiting you on the farm and you were showing me how you had changed how you were planting. So you were you were actually increasing the yield in a smaller area. And that seems like quite a clever thing to be doing. Yeah. So one of the things we've adopted over the last couple of years is um, moving away from tractor based farming and moving more towards human powered and hand tool farming. And what went hand in hand with that was a shift to uh, what you might call a no-dig bed system. The no-dig is essentially disturbing the soil as little as possible. And the aim there is to try and maintain the soil health because you soon learn from other farmers and boots the most important thing is maintaining the soil health and that way you can grow really strong, healthy plants. So, So essentially what we've been doing with the bed system is you're using a 75 centimeter wide bed and then a 45 centimeter wide path. And then by using this system, it's very ergonomic on the body. You can straddle the bed and it makes a lot of the processes quite easy with that size. But the other thing it does is instead of using a tractor where you're making sort of ridges, you end up cutting out half of the paths. It might be hard to explain, but basically the short of it is it's far more efficient on a small scale in terms of production space. So in many ways, this new system has allowed us to get a lot more production out of our square meter area. And it ends up being a lot more user-friendly for humans using hand tools. So that's been really interesting comparing the data because we're transitioning over. We're not fully over on that system, but we've been taking information from the tractor-based one and comparing it to the same crop on a bed. And it's just so much more profitable in the terms of your yield that you can actually attain from that. So that's been really encouraging. Well, it's really great that you've got a model there that's not only more efficient in terms of the yield that you're getting from your land, but it's also obviously better for the soil and better for the land. So it's a bit of a win-win situation there. Definitely. It does feel like a win-win at the moment. Yeah. That's really positive. From speaking to you, Ian, I can see that you're really passionate about small farms and it'd be really good if you could just explore that a little bit. Yeah, I guess the few things that stick out for me about why we would need more small farms are, well, one obvious one to me is the climate issue that we face. And um, one of the huge benefits of having, say, many, many small farms dotted around a community or a city is the ability to reduce the food mileage. So how far you're, you're delivering veg is reduced when you're delivering to local people, of course. So that's one big benefit. And the other benefits I think of are the health benefits that you get from eating extremely fresh vegetables. When you're harvesting, packing and delivering to restaurants that day or wholesalers that day, and you know that they're going to be putting it out straight away or, you know, picking and packing and delivering to your veg box customers the next day, you just know that you're giving them a really fresh product that tastes a lot nicer, in my opinion. Therefore, you're probably going to have people eating more of it because it tastes good. But also the nutritional value of it is going to be really high. So that's good for the health of the customer. And then I would think about, you know, what farming the experience has done for me personally is I feel like it's allowed me to really grow in my understanding about the natural world and giving me that connection to nature. 
and um, allowing me to be physically active outside and doing something that I feel is really positive. You really are feeling it there and I'm sure anybody listening to this will be feeling really inspired. I was wondering what you thought about how can we change the narrative that's around vegetable growing that it's not necessarily that profitable and enterprise to go into and how can we then encourage others to actually get into this business? So yeah, you do get the sense or I got the sense from other vegetable growers that it's not exactly the most profitable thing to do. And and they could be right comparing it to other ventures, but I truly believe that small farms can be profitable. There's enough examples out there, you know, just to name two. You've got Neversink Farm near New York. They're on 1.3 acres and they're doing $300,000 turnover. You know, that's, that's very impressive. And then you've got Curtis Stone also known as the urban farmer, he was doing about $100,000 on half an acre, or maybe even under. And he's in an urban farming context. And then I look at our farm and, you know, we're profitable, we all get a wage and and it's an enjoyable experience. But I think it's like any business, you can be profitable or not profitable. I think it comes down to, you know, you do need to remember it's a business and you do really have to work hard on making sure it's efficient and analyzing your bottom line and looking at what's coming in and what's going out. Yeah, I think it could be very profitable if it's done well. Yeah, I mean, it's really encouraging to see other people doing it well. And it makes you think that it's possible to do yourself. And there's a lot of really great information out there. If people are keen to learn or get inspired, uh, I'm just thinking now, if, if people are interested, I would like to just list off a few of the people I admire and get inspiration from. And so, yeah, just quickly, Charles Dowding, John Mortan Fortier, uh, Elliot Coleman, and Ben Hartman. These guys are just real pioneers, I would say, in a movement at the moment that seems to be growing, especially in, in the States, but here so as well. I think we're a bit behind, but I think... There are a lot of good examples popping up now. So it's really encouraging. That does sound really positive. You've already perhaps touched on this a little bit, but what advice would you give to those that were wanting to start a veggie business? Yes. You know, if you really are wanting to set up, some of these farmers offer their own online courses. Um, It's not something that I've actually been on, although I've heard very good things about them. So if someone's really keen, then maybe check out that. I would say like for us growing vegetables in the north of Scotland, having polytunnels is one of the musts or one of the best investments you can make just for extending your shoulder season growing capacity and and having things growing quicker throughout the year generally. That would be a really good investment. And yeah, start composting straight away if you get a site because compost is like gold. Yeah, get in touch with other farms. If you're interested, uh, myself and, and my mom will be more than happy to lend some information or have people come and see what we're doing. And I think the, the farming community is one that embraces newcomers and are keen to see other new farms do well. You know, collect data, keep good records, figure out what's profitable and be curious to learn because you're, you're always going to be learning. It's one of the great things about being on a farm. When you do start making money, I would say invest as much as you can back in the business because it'll really pay off, I think, down the line. That sounds really like great advice. You were speaking there about the importance of working together, and I sort of see that as a bit of your vision, that there's a network of these small vegetable-grown farms dotted around. So I was just wondering on that note, 
how you collaborate with local producers at present and maybe how those relationships have evolved, especially over this last year when we've all faced the incredible challenge of COVID. Yeah, so we're one of a few small veggie producers up here. There's also McLeod Organics, there's Black Isle Veg Boxes, there's Not Farrell, there's a few others. But the ones that we've collaborated with this year are actually McLeod Organics and Black Isle Veg Boxes. And yeah, this year was just such a crazy year with COVID and everything, but it changed the demand for the veg boxes. Suddenly, within a week, we got the number of requests that we might get in a year. So we were trying to adjust our plan because we do about 35% typically of our turnover goes through restaurants. And of course, they were pretty much wiped off the table for most of the year. So we had to figure something else out. We had a lot of salad already in the ground because salad is our sort of number one crop for restaurants. And uh, there was just no way we could give that all to our own customers. So, um, yeah, we were really fortunate with our talks with Black Isle Veg Boxes and Cloud Organics. They were keen to help us out and we managed to wholesale a lot of our salad to them and then we enjoyed working with each other and we decided to extend that through most of the year so that's been good we managed to adjust our plan to kind of fit that and they've been great so we're able to work with these other veg producers and that's fantastic and yeah one of my aims is to really grow this business and expand my knowledge and be able to help other people i think that'd be fantastic it sounds like working together almost brings together a better, more sustainable offer. And I, I'm assuming that going forward, you will continue to work together. Yeah, definitely. I, I would like that. Yeah, it's important to help each other out and collaborate. And we're all generally working towards a, a similar goal. That's really encouraging to know that that's all going on, Ian. It'd be really good if you could just tell us who's on the team. So you've got your small farm, it's less than an acre. And you are managing to feed 100 households and keep half a dozen restaurants going with seasonal veggies. And that is really super impressive. So who works behind the scenes to make all this happen? So at the moment, there's just three of us right now. So my mum, she's full time. Myself, I'm usually full time for, say, eight months of the year and then part time. And then there's my girlfriend, Katrina. So she has been helping about three days a week. So, yeah, just three of us at the moment. But I think we're we're probably looking to, to take someone on next year. So if anyone's uh, interested, we'll be putting something up probably early next year. And so, yeah, just a small team, but we're able to produce a lot of food. I really think that's the best bit about this story. My mind's still blown at the fact that you can feed all of those households on such a small piece of land. I'm hoping that's what inspires people. You know, you don't need to get a huge farm. You know, if you can get yourself half an acre or an acre, you can really be making a massive difference. Just thinking there about what you're saying with this recruitment opportunity that's coming up for some lucky person next year to join the team potentially, that would be really ideal for somebody that was wanting to get into this and it'd be a good way to learn, wouldn't it? Definitely, yeah, definitely. We are keen to expand, and um, but not massive. And yeah, we're keen to share the skills and take on a couple of new people maybe. Just to finish off, Ian, it'd be lovely if you could tell us what your one wish for the Highland food system is. It would simply be just a lot more local producers, and that would be, you know, farms of vegetables or dairy and eggs and meats and bakeries and, yeah, just a sort of buzzing local food-producing place. Well, that's exactly what we're trying to inspire here at the Highland Good Food Conversation. So fingers crossed that your wish comes true.
I find it utterly fascinating and inspiring what Maggie, Ian and Katrina are achieving on their farm. With less than an acre of land, they are providing a 100 households with vegetables as well as six restaurants. This shows it is possible to grow enough veg for all, whilst our farmers make a good living and have a fantastic quality of life. If you're interested in learning more, I would definitely get in touch with Maggie or Ian. This is such an encouraging story. Back on our first episode, we met Rachel from Moo Food, a community food growing charity that sits close to my heart. Recording this podcast has reminded me of the importance of the community growing sector in terms of increasing people's access to a diverse range of seasonal veg. At Moo Food, we have 25 growing boxes spread out across our village, all containing seasonal veg for everyone in the community to help themselves to. Our lovely gardener Ellie does a wonderful job of ensuring there is enough yummy food available 12 months of the year and has introduced us all to a diversity of green veggies that we didn't even know existed. At Moo Food, we also grow veg in our polytunnels to share with our community through our community fridge. We certainly don't produce food at any great quantity, but we do show what is possible, inspiring others to grow their own and to experiment with cooking and growing, as do an increasing number of community growing projects across the Highlands, which is very encouraging to see. If you'd like to find out more about Moo Food, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube or at moofood.org. So to wrap this episode up, I think it's fair to conclude eating more veg is essential for our health and planetary health. The solution lies in all of us working together. A cross-sectoral approach is imperative. The Natural Vegetable Company shows us all what is possible and we can all play a role in this too through our community groups and what we grow in our gardens. Let's eat more veg. If you're feeling inspired and want to join the food movement in the Highlands, why not come along to our conference in January? Get tickets at highlandgoodfood.scot forward slash conference. Hope to see you there.